Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show is going to be about wireless security, how wireless can have a higher cost profile than physical cabling, and that is something that you should think about before, as you try and find your own way between balancing the use of wireless and balancing, oh, maybe I should just put a physical network cable there. Let's talk about the 321 backup rule and how that's actually been modified recently, and I say recently in the last three years, I think, considering the fact that I keep seeing issues in this department uh, with regards to the way that people are executing backups, it's worth talking about this again. And then we'll talk about multi-factor authentication and IP access controls and why monitoring and response strategies are really only worth spending on money, spending money on if you've addressed this first whole strategy of what I call proactive lockdown. So let's get started. First on the topic of wireless security. Most recently, there was the crook, K-R-O-O-K, the crook vulnerability that was uh, very recently disclosed in the last uh, two months here. And this describes just the latest in a batch of security vulnerabilities associated with drivers for wireless network cards. And the chipsets also have firmware, which is like the software for the hardware for the device. So this could be an iPhone, an Android phone. It could be a wireless printer, could be a thermostat, could be your Roku, could be your Samsung TV, could be any of these types of devices, really. Uh, these are the types of things you have to think about. It could be um, a little radio that you have. So one of the challenges that you face with wireless devices is that some wireless devices are very well maintained by the manufacturer and they have a good maintenance life cycle. So for example, if you were to look at an Intel wireless NIC, Intel does a fantastic job of having a good, long, viable life cycle for publishing, firmware updates, and driver updates. On the other hand, you look at most other manufacturers, and they have a very specific life cycle that they say that they are going to produce patches for vulnerabilities in firmware and the drivers. Now, the driver is the functionality between the operating system and the network card itself. So if the manufacturer does not have a commitment to updating those things, or if you are trying to utilize this wireless equipment beyond the life cycle of the stated you know, time frame of what the manufacturer says, well, then the likelihood is that you're running into a device that has no ability to communicate with secured wireless. Well, so first let's define secured wireless. Secured wireless is basically less than 1% of all wireless that's out there. The vast, it's certainly in the residential space, it's probably less than one-tenth of a percent of all wireless that's out there. Uh, in the residential space, pretty much all the wireless that you run into is just complete and utter total insecure garbage. I mean, it's just a, a, a basket of hacks just waiting to happen. It's just terrible. It's truly atrocious. 
As of right now, there's only one manufacturer in the entire world that has a fully functional WIPS, which is Wireless Intrusion Prevention System. Okay, There's only one manufacturer that even has a viable WIPS system, and that is WatchGuard's Total Wi-Fi Solution, and that is the solution that we deploy. Uh, they also have the secure Wi-Fi, but um, suffice to say, total Wi-Fi and secure Wi-Fi. When WIPS is configured on these WatchGuard wireless access points, uh, it does actually create the most secure wireless in the world. When you have secure wireless, you're now securing your network. And as part of that, this system is very up-to-date. And it will block things that are vulnerable from attempting to associate with your wireless unless certain exceptions or allowances are made. And that's usually done on a per device basis. So it's very common to have a total client isolation, internet access only, no client to client communication sort of guest network. And then you just put these naughty little devices on there. So you could have your little Samsung TVs that um, perpetually run IPS vulnerabilities because they're unpatched, uh, Roku boxes, um, old radios, even new internet radios. Uh, there's a wide variety of devices that just have terrible wireless security. They are the epitome of insecurity. Even Tesla cars. Oh, yes. We have a client that has a Tesla car, and I can tell you that it is atrocious from a wireless security perspective. <laughs> like, it's really bad. So when you have secure wireless... It has the capabilities to look for devices that do not comply with a fully patched client basis. So it finds things that are vulnerable to crook or to the crack vulnerability, crack one, crack two, and then you have the WPA2 vulnerabilities. And it looks for those things and it says, wait a second here, these things are insecure and uh, I'm not going to allow them to associate to the wireless. So you first off in your strategy here, you have to have a whole guest and then a private sort of wireless strategy at a bare minimum. You know, actually for businesses, we do things much more complicated than that. But even in a residential scenario, you need to have a guest network so that you can put all your little naughty insecure devices on that guest network. And then they can just do their little naughtiness and only talk to stuff on the internet and like not hack each other and certainly not hack your PCs. And then you have your the internal private wireless that is actually associated with the ability to have devices talk to each other. So that's your PC talks to your printer, etc. Your, your printer does not need to be wireless. And I would strongly suggest that people just don't use wireless printers because they have a higher total cost of ownership. And that higher total cost of ownership is the challenge of taking a device that is inherently not designed to be a secure device. So it's not like uh, a wireless network card inside of a laptop, a good laptop, uh, that has a good life cycle such as you know, a nice uh, Dell laptop with an Intel wireless NIC that you know for probably at least five years you're going to be able to get firmware updates and driver updates and be able to keep that thing up to date. 
I've ran into an endless supply of circumstances where people are still having a laptop that seems to work just fine in year five or six, but suddenly it fails to function correctly on the wireless. Well, guess what? You know, there is no wireless update for the thing. And in fact, frequently you'll find where there's no wireless updates for the thing um, after three years. So it's really important that if you have any intention whatsoever of having a viable life cycle for your equipment that you get help from somebody like us in picking out that equipment because a subtle little difference between something like saying, well, I'm going to get a Dell laptop and I'm going to get the Intel wireless NIC in it. Yeah, it's like 24 bucks more expensive versus getting some other brand, some other manufactured brand of wireless network card. Well, that has massive implications for you in terms of the long-term total cost of ownership of that device. I mean, literally, um, I know of somebody right now that cannot use their laptop anymore on wireless because there hasn't been an update for the wireless card since 2014. You know, so yeah, it's just like, it's not going to work. You cannot put that thing on secure wireless. So then do you make a judgment call that says, I'm going to just completely eliminate all the security on my wireless for all of my devices, just so I can accommodate this old piece of junk that I've got, you know, so you're, that's really not a good approach, obviously. <clears throat> so the best approach that I find from not only personal experience, but also from client experience is that your lowest total cost of ownership over the long run is going to be to go to the effort one time of running the pathways for cabling. Now I'm saying this very carefully, specifically in that way. I am not just strictly talking about running physical network cabling. I'm talking about you need to run the pathways. So conduit, flex, smurf tube, whatever it is, you need to actually run a pathway. Why? Well, because 20 years from now or 15 years from now, whatever that time frame is, you are going to want to pull out that old cabling that is no longer performing for you and put in new cabling. Oh, and believe me, you do not want to be trying to a jerk around with cabling that was not run in a pathway that you can just simply attach a new wire to and pull through using the old wire. Because now you're talking about another exorbitantly expensive project. So to do a typical house uh, with a rack and things like that might be like a $3,800 project. It's not really that bad. And you're talking about that uh, initial first investment. So first off, that cabling is going to last you probably 20 years. And the rule of thumb with it is that if the network cable is physically plugged into the device, then things are going to work. And I had a client up, uh, up north who moved into a new house and was talking to me about Oh, well, I just want to use wireless and stuff. And we had this conversation about, well, okay, do you really want to mess around with having to program the wireless into every single one of your TVs and every single one of your devices all the time and then have to waste time troubleshooting? Well, why can't it connect and blah, 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 you know, all these little issues? Or do you just want to plug the network cable into the device? 
so so sure enough um we go on about this whole process of putting in network cabling and uh, everything's wonderful and then some painters come by and they move stuff and of course they disconnected one of the tvs and did not connect the tv back well so client calls up and says oh, tv doesn't work and i'm like is the network cable plugged into it and they look and they're like, no it's not and i'm like plug the cable in and your problem is solved you know <laughs> so sure enough plug the cable in problem is solved and that is how simple and reliable things can be and therefore the lowest total cost of ownership if you just go with a physical cabling strategy over uh, wireless. Now, I'm not totally against wireless. I think that wireless needs to be judiciously used. There's something else to consider with wireless, which is that if you have a single wireless access point, it has a gigabit internet connection into it or, or a network connection into it, which is 1,000 megabits. And if you have 10 devices connecting to it, we're not talking about simple math here. This is not take 1,000 and divide it by 10. It doesn't really work that way. So that's because there are things called communication overheads and broadcast traffic and pause time. Wireless is extremely complicated. So if you have a desire to have a certain minimum throughput of bandwidth throughput to a particular endpoint, then you get to a calculation uh, that says, all right, based upon this device and its technology and these types of radios that it has, what's the conceivable upper limit of the number of devices that I could have associated with that access point and still deliver 40, 50 megabits of throughput to those devices. And I say 40, 50 because that is where we're at from a user experience perspective these days, that uh, really 10 megabits throughput is not what people are interested in accepting as a user experience anymore. And if certainly you start looking at something like a Roku device or, you know, a smart TV, that thing is going to want to hog 100 megabits of download in order to load up your streaming uh, stuff in a timely fashion. So, you know, if you start associating too many devices to that one wireless access point, then that is a choke point compared to a situation if you just have a physical cable going to each device where possible, then that device is not competing in the same way. There's still competition at the WAN interface on your perimeter security appliance, but that is much easier, much more handled, and there's no injection of things like wireless overhead traffic and SSID broadcast overhead traffic. That's just strictly flow control happening on Ethernet interfaces, which is technology that's been around for 20 years, and it works extremely efficiently with almost no overhead. So uh, wireless just in general has a higher total cost of ownership over the long run and uh, use it if you have to. But if you can get a physical network cable to something, that's going to be the most cost effective approach. All right, moving on to the 321 rule of backups. This is something that like everybody seems to need a refresher course on all the time and that this rule has been dramatically enhanced in the last few years with the requirement to have what's called offline or air-gapped backups in order to deal with 
the spread of malicious garbage either through version replication or just simply because your other backups are also accessible using the same credential set as the originals. And years ago, I did a really sweet podcast on the topic of called ransomware-proof backups, and that's still available on qualitypluscounsulting.com website as a downloadable MP3 file. And that ransomware-proof backups talks about this strategy of effectively using technology to air gap certain quantities of your backups using... Uh, a credential strategy combined with uh, pieces of software that do replication uh, and then network attached storage appliances. That is still an exceptionally effective technique. So air gapping backups is not really that productive for most organizations and most people because there's no automation in air gapping. There are still some really big companies that are utilizing tape and tape certainly is uh, effectively air gapped because once that magnetic medium is removed from being actively loaded into the tape array then uh, it's effectively an offline backup, right? It's it's air gapped because uh, there's no way to access that without reloading it on there. Uh, air gapping is problematic also from the perspective that most people's data sets exceed the the capability, certainly from a redundancy perspective, uh, to be able to just put that on a single device, and the speed of this data transfer and the level of reporting associated with it, because we have to monitor our backups, right? You have to monitor backups. When you're doing these processes manually and saying, oh, I'm going to create a manual air-gapped backup, generally I find that that strategy just doesn't work because people don't execute that strategy. So now what does work? Well, three, two, one backups, let's start with that. You have to have at least three copies of your data. Two copies are on devices and then one has to be off-site, right? So you're mitigating the risk of loss of your data due to fire, tornado, physical theft at the source, things like that. And then we get into the realm of saying, how do we address the requirement of mitigating the risk of ransomware eating data and the, or the credential access method on the source that may reach into the source backups is then able to eat the offsite backups, right? You have to address that because we basically have two main categories of how things are getting hosed these days, where your data is getting encrypted or it's getting corrupted in some shape, size, or flavor, or credential theft. So some credentials have been stolen, and these credentials are, and this could simply be a 
escalation of privilege attack. So you're on your computer, you're running as admin, even though you know you shouldn't be, and you have direct access to the NAS. Okay, well, if you have direct access to the NAS, and that is the source data on the NAS, then you know your credential could blow away all that data that's on the NAS. Well, this is the same thing that happened with the I love you virus in 1997. This is nothing new. Now, if that same credential can blast the backups on the NAS too, oh, well, you got some major bad mojo going on there. So we're talking about credential separation here. There has to be no ability for the credentials or credentials that have been stolen on the source end user's computer to be able to reach into the backups and whack them. And then you also have to address this problem of, okay, now we've got a source NAS where the backups exist and there's the you know credentials to access it there. Well, now what about getting that to the offsite backups? Well, you'd better be using another credential set to get there because you have to have these barriers where the bad guys are having an incredibly difficult time whacking each prospective data set. You know, each barrier has to be ramped up in the level of difficulty. So a replica of your data is not a backup. You have to actually have backups and then the backups should have offsite backups. So there should be, here's my data set and I've got a local backup but then I also have an offsite backup and there needs to be credential separation amongst all of those things. Is any of this stuff easy? No, it's not easy. If it was easy, little babies would do it, right? What I'm doing here is trying to help you understand the complexity of these things so that you can evaluate your backup solution against this criteria. And if your backup solution doesn't meet this criteria, then you need to be asking, hey, what needs to be happening differently with my backup solution? Because one of our most effective methods out there for dealing with issues is having the ability to recover. So it could be a situation where you've got this precious computer and you are really in love with its configuration. It's got all your software set up and configured and so forth, and it's all beautiful and it works just like you want it. Okay, well, then you better be making a full system image of that computer and storing it someplace where that data is not going to get hosed. And then you better have a very effective, well-established technique to do a bare metal recovery for that system. And if it's really a critical system, then you should be making a full system image once a month. And I might even argue that you should retain permanently your very first known good working fully functional full system image of that computer. What I see happen almost ubiquitously, at least on devices that are not managed by us. So every time I'm looking at somebody's new computer, you know, a, a new client or something like that, and I'm looking at their computer, what I see is they've got some computer that they rely on its configuration, but they've only got the most recent or maybe the most recent three backups of that particular computer. And the thing is, is that it got jacked up a long time before that. 
So we got nothing to go back to. What you really need was the system configuration from two years ago when it wasn't all jacked up. Now, of course, it's a better strategy to just make sure the computer doesn't get jacked up to begin with, but the only way I find that actually happens is when people don't have admin access to their computers and they're not making changes to their computers, they're not getting other people involved in making changes to their computers other than their one service provider who has that responsibility to manage things for them. The alternative is that they spend an inordinate amount of time getting all trained on what they can and should be doing with their alternate admin credentials. You know, So for example, um, I don't know, let's say I need to update my QuickBooks or I need to update my accounting package. You know, and I talk to my IT service provider and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's all good. You go ahead and you do those updates. No problem. Fine. Okay, great. Now that's going to be fine. But I wouldn't do necessarily a full version major upgrade. I would still have my IT service provider do that. But installing the little updates? Um, sure. So there are these boundaries that are helpful to follow with regards to maintaining the value of the investment that you've made into this computer, its configuration. You want it to continue to be known good working system, then uh, you, know, you have to try to do a variety of techniques to make sure that its configuration does not go all wonky town because that's what I basically find happens is people just start installing a variety of things they'll decide oh we're gonna put iTunes on here and then we're gonna and then you get bonjour and and you're gonna install your 150 applications well trying to manage the interaction effect of 150 different applications can be very problematic and there will be challenges with that. It is inevitable. So what's a better approach is, like what usually we do for all of our uh, business customers, is you know, if they have an accounting computer, then that is dedicated for that purpose. And that way, you know, you look at a billing computer, or an accounting computer, or some specialty computer, some specialty purpose computer, like when somebody says, we're going to lose money if this computer is down. Well, then that computer needs to have a different paradigm around it, which is that changes to it are not made by just anyone. Uh, and it is not used for everything under the sun purposes. It is deemed to be this has a specific purpose, this computer is very important, and if it doesn't work correctly or if the software and it doesn't work correctly, then we have an adverse impact, um, then you need to treat it with that sort of a paradigm. Uh, either that or you accept the fact that it could go for shizzle at some point in time. Uh, you just can't be trying to run 300 different applications all on the same computer and expecting that everything's going to work hunky-dory permanently together. Uh, so that is, that's that fun. And in the last little bit of time here, I'm going to talk about MFA and IP access controls. There's been a lot of attention lately spent to monitoring services for after-the-fact notifications after a credential has been breached, and I find those things to be only useful 
in the circumstance that you've already spent the time and energy locking down the access to begin with. So the best approach is to simply deny the ability to even attempt to authenticate. So if you're trying to protect a system, just deny the ability to even attempt to authenticate. And you generally can't do that with most cloud-hosted platforms. Okay, there's no account lockout, there's no GOIP blocking, there's no IP access control restrictions in the vast majority of cloud-hosted platforms, even though there should be. So the best approach is if those technologies are available to you, and you certainly do have them with regards to your on-premise technologies, if you're using a properly programmed perimeter security appliance, First off, just deny the ability for the authentication attempt to even happen. And then after that, use multi-factor authentication. So if we do things like multi-factor authentication approaches, then we don't have to be as concerned about things having to do with credential theft. Now, if you've got certain accounts that you can't use multi-factor authentication on, well then boy, you better be concerned about credential theft regarding those. But MFA, when properly implemented using push-based app notifications, can be exceptionally effective. And when you couple that with an email notification system that says, hey, hey, you know, there's uh, an, an authentication attempt here that was a failed authentication attempt. Now you've got a treasure trove of information there. Because if you can put in the intelligence into the MFA system that email notifies the admin that, you know, there's been two missed um, MFA attempts on this particular account, now you're in some serious good business there, being able to know that there's something going on with that particular end user. And then the phone calls need to be happening at that point in time. Go find that end user and talk to them voice to voice. Well, that's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it.